to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we are in Luke chapter 24. I'm going to give you a minute to find your places in your Bible. But it will also be printed on the screen behind me. So again, that's Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Easter is a big deal for a preacher. It's sort of the one Sunday that you can't miss. Uh, But last year, uh, my wife on this day was very sick. We found out on Thursday that she had COVID and the flu. It was a double barrel, it was a lot of fun. And and, uh, we were home, locked down with COVID, caring for my wife, and I wasn't here. And since I had some time, I took some time to look around and watch some other church services. I watched some local and some around the, the, the country and I looked at services of churches that I would like really kind of jive with and and kind of be on the same page with. I looked at some churches that would be very different from from me and from us. 
And one thing stood out to me in, in all of them. They were talented preachers, gifted musicians. They were very well put together services. But there was one question that I kept asking myself. And it wasn't just about their services. It was, I was thinking about us and our church as well. The, the one question I kept asking myself is, where is the power of God? There are great services, as I said. That was one glaring omission. And what I mean by this is, if you're here like, what, is, what does he mean by that? What, what I mean by, this, by that is this. Where is the power that changes a person and causes them to know? Key word, to know. To know the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and having tasted honey, knowing that well-done South Carolina barbecue is the best in the world, or having tasted it is the difference between hearing about it and having tasted it and known it. To, to know that you are in the presence and under the lordship of the Lord God himself. I'm talking about the tangible, the, the known presence of Jesus Christ who has been killed for your sin and has been resurrected by the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the sense that you can almost literally hear him calling to you, inviting you, urging you, even commanding you to come to him for salvation. See, that's the kind of thing that changes a person. We, we're going to see that in our text today. That's the kind of thing that changes a church. It's the kind of thing that changes a whole region. And as we've seen from that first Easter till now, it's the kind of thing that changes the world. It catches like wildfire. It runs from a hungry soul to hungry soul to hungry soul. And it's the kind of thing that persecution and threat of death has no power over. That's what happened to the early Christians in the early church, those followers of Jesus in the early days. They went from being these kind of dull disciples that we see walking with Jesus on the road to becoming the type of people that the threat of death and persecution itself had no power over them. And the gospel that was oftentimes outlawed, oftentimes looked down upon, oftentimes threatened against by the powers that be, it could not stop that gospel from spreading from hungry soul to hungry soul all across the world. It's the power, you see, to change a region, a church, but also the power to change you. Because at its core, Christianity is not just another world religion. At its core, Christianity is unique in that it's about the person and a power. Christianity is utterly unique because it's about a person and a power. And I've been praying since last Easter that the Lord would renew that kind of faith in us. I've been praying that what we've called Christianity and the church would be eclipsed by us becoming, by us becoming, like the early church, a people of the person and the power of Jesus. You see, Easter is at the very heart of our faith. And the message of Easter is the message of what we call the gospel or the good news of Jesus. It is about the person of Jesus and the power of Jesus, and it has the power to change you. And that's why we've chosen this text for today, because it's about the person and the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But if, here's the thing. In choosing this passage and talking about Jesus Christ this way, 
If, if he doesn't show up for us this morning like he did for these disciples on this road and in their house, if he, if, he, it'll, if he doesn't show up like that for us this morning and speak to our souls and our hearts, then it'll just be another interesting story. Nothing more. I went to church. I observed Easter. We read an interesting story about a risen Christ. Now let's go get some ham. I'm a big fan of ham, by the way. So if you are a believer this morning, here's my ask for you. My ask is that you would pray and ask the Father to manifest Christ in this room as I speak. And if you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not sure, I'd ask for you to cry out, but if you came here with a hungry soul, I ask that you would cry out to God that he would make himself real. God, pray this prayer to yourself as I get ready to pray. God, if you are real, show me this morning. That's a prayer he will answer. Let's pray. Father, we ask for you to do for us what you did for these two disciples. They are just walking along a road, and you turned it into a holy place where they met Jesus, and he caused their eyes to be opened. Father, we pray that you would do the same for us. Cause our hearts to burn within us this morning as we sense the presence and power of the risen Christ. Help us to taste and see that he is good. Holy Spirit, have your way. Glorify the Son, as in his name we pray, amen. So let's catch up to this moment so we can understand what's going on in the story. We'll run through this really quickly. Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that's a week ago today, his triumphant entry. Um, if you were here last week, we covered that text. If you weren't here, maybe you're familiar with it. If you're not, he came in riding on the back of a young donkey, and the, the people around him were celebrating, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes into Jerusalem with that kind of interest. He's, his, he's become incredibly popular as he's been preaching around the nation of Israel, as he's been doing miracles and signs and wonders. He's become incredibly popular. And now the people are praising him, it says, for the works that he had done. Now, as, that, if you, as you can picture, as that Jesus, as he entered into Jerusalem, riding on the back of this young colt of the donkey, the authorities of Jerusalem were threatened. This is a man who is not one of them, who wields great influence and power, and he's calling them, he's saying that, that they have put on extra weights on the people's back that they cannot bear. They were threatened. And so they had been conspiring to arrest him and to kill him. Why, how, how can we get this man who threatens our power, how can we get him alone? How can we arrest him and then try him and kill him? It was tough, though, because he was so popular. So here's what they found. They found the weak link in his entourage. They found Judas, who had been taking a little money off the top of uh, the treasury for Jesus. As people would give money for Jesus' ministry, he would, he would skim a little off the top. Sounds like a lot of preachers that you've probably heard about. Skim a little bit off the top, and they said, hey, he's a weak link. And so they came and offered him, hey, we'll give you this money. We'll give you this silver if you betray Jesus. If you tell us a place that he'll be where he'll be alone and no followers will be around to threaten. So he did. They snuck up on him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was praying. He was betrayed. They took him and they put him through sham trials where they had hired witnesses give false testimony against Jesus. He was tried by the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities and then turned over to be crucified on Friday. 
Jesus, though, had been predicting this for months and months. He had been telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. It was so well known that it's why they put guards on the tomb so that no of his, none of his followers would come and steal his body and say, hey, look, the, the tomb is empty. Jesus was raised from the dead, and they're hiding him in another tomb every year. It was well known. Jesus was crucified, and he was, and this is important, he was verified dead by Roman officials and witnesses, and they don't miss a beat. This is how dead he was. He was like dead, dead. Like he died on the cross, and just to make sure, they pierced his side with a spear just to make sure this man is dead. And they put him in a tomb, a borrowed tomb, closed it up, sealed it up, put officials, guards in front, and they said, now it's taken care of. But something happened. On Sunday morning, the third day after he was killed, there was an, a shaking. The guards were rushed away. The tomb was removed. Angels showed up, and Jesus emerged from the grave. And you know who was the first person to see him? Some women. Women who, in the day, their testimony was not even allowed into court. Women were the first ones to see Jesus. His disciples, they, they were, the women came and told them, the disciples ran and looked at the, in the tomb and they found it to be so as well. But even his closest disciples, those that had been with him, those that had seen him do miracles, those that had heard him say over and over again, I will be killed and on the third day I will rise again, even they didn't believe. That's important to the story. Even they doubted when they saw the empty tomb. And that's where we join in in our passage, which was written by Luke, by the way, a recognized, capable, and reliable historian. That Sunday evening, two of his disciples, who were pretty unimportant people in general, and here's how we know that. They name one of, his, one of these two disciples, Cleopas, who we never hear mentioned again, and the other one isn't even mentioned at all in the story. We don't know if it was Cleopas' wife or his son or a friend, but probably one of those because they lived in the same village, lived together in this house. We don't know. These two unimportant people, unimportant disciples, these nondescript, unnamed, basically, disciples are walking back to their village about seven miles from Jerusalem, and somebody comes up and walks with them, and we know it's Jesus. We know from reading the story that he's risen, but they don't recognize. And here's the questions. Why does Luke use this story to show us the resurrected Jesus? What does it tell us about the person of Jesus? And what does it show us about the power of Jesus? Well, look at this. Luke highlights, and the disciples talked about how whenever they, later on, when they said, didn't our hearts burn within us, they talked about how Jesus walked with them. Jesus walked with them. This shows us what kind of Lord he is. Even though he was the Lord of heaven and earth, even though he was the risen king of all creation, even though he was God incarnate, he shows up to, with these disciples who don't even believe that he is risen, who are walking back to their village, and he shows up and he takes the time to walk with them. To walk with these, these 
disciples, there was nothing outstanding about them. Not only was there nothing outstanding about them, they didn't even believe that he had been risen from the dead. They were what we would call kind of dull disciples. Dale already used that word this morning, dull disciples. They had heard about the empty tomb. They recounted that story to Jesus. They knew that he had predicted on the third day. Here is Jesus himself walking with them to their village, and they still didn't believe or understand. Jesus is risen, yet here they are, the disciples walking him, and they're sorrowful. It says that he looked at them, and they were very sad. They were sorrowful. They were disappointed. They said, yes, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to come and redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one that we were waiting for. We had hoped he was the one who was coming to save us. They were disappointed. And they were bewildered. It says, yes, and it is now even the the third day. And these women came and reported to us that the, the tomb is empty, but we don't know what's going on. Their hopes have been dashed. They've been disciples and followers of Jesus. They thought he was going to come and make and save the nation of Israel by, I don't know, using his powers or calling forth an army or maybe both. And now their hopes had been dashed. They were disillusioned. They had bought into this Jesus thing only to be disappointed. And now they're wondering, what happened? It says they were talking on the way. What happened? Were we duped? What did we miss? Have you ever felt that way about Jesus or the church? Have you ever felt like it didn't live up to what you thought it was supposed to be? Maybe Jesus didn't answer that prayer that you prayed. Maybe he didn't give you what he thought, what you thought he was going to give you. Maybe that spouse or that kid didn't happen the way that you planned. Have you ever been disappointed and disillusioned in his people in church? They're in it for the money. They're in it for power. I got in and I was super involved in this one church. I was all about it. And you won't believe what that pastor did. Disappointed, disillusioned, maybe left with deep doubts about the whole thing. I wonder if this is, is this thing even real? In this account, we know that this is Jesus. We know that he's been raised, just as he said. We know that these disciples, their understanding is incomplete and fuzzy. We can see that they're missing the real Jesus in front of them, but they don't see him. He's there, but they don't recognize him. And maybe that's happening to some of us here today. You're disappointed and disillusioned by what masquerades around as Christianity, but the risen Jesus is still here. He's still risen. But look at what he does with these dull disciples, and this is really sweet. Not only does he take the time, to, he comes and he walks with them, but he takes the time to be with them. Now here's the thing about the risen Jesus, is that he can't be more, he can appear and disappear and show up in all kinds of places and lock doors, don't keep him out. He can come through walls, but he can only be in one place at one time because he's in a physical human body. And he takes the time on this one Easter day to walk with these two unnamed, unimportant disciples on this dusty road. And he doesn't just show up and say, hey, I'm busy, guys. I'm here. Shabam! And I'm getting out of here. Like some important person, he comes and he takes the time and he walks down the road with them, getting dust on his glorified feet. And he engages in them in the questions that they have 
He asks them questions. He enters into their disillusionment and into their confusion. What kind of person is this? He's risen. He could, he's beaten death. He's endured suffering unlike anyone will ever know. He can do anything and he can be anywhere, but he walks a dusty road with two disciples that don't even believe that he's there. Don't even believe that he's risen. On this momentous day, he didn't appear to a king or to a mighty priest. He drew near to normal, dull, disappointed, disillusioned, disbelieving disciples. Did you hear that? He drew near to them and he walked with them. I wonder what he's done for you. I wonder how he's walked with you. I wonder how he's been patient and entered into your very doubts and disbelief. And even when you didn't see him, even if you aren't sure if he's real, I wonder how he's been by your side, guiding your life, calling you, bringing you to a place where he could show you who he is. What a person. He had a a physical body. He appeared to them. He walked with them. He interacted with them. He ate with them. Jesus isn't just the kind of Savior who would die for you. He's the kind of Savior that would become man for you. And he didn't just do his job and run back to heaven. What he's showing us in his human body as he walks to them is he's showing them in us that he is utterly approachable. And as he's walking with them, the thing that they remembered is, do you remember how he walked with us and how he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus walks to them and he says, hey, so what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only person coming from Jerusalem who hasn't hit that? Where have you been? Are you under a rock? Meanwhile, by the way, all of Jerusalem knew what had happened. This is not something that happened in a corner of the world. They're walking with him and, and Jesus says, tell me, what, tell, me what, uh, tell me what you're talking about. And Cleopas says, well, here's the deal. And he lays out, we heard it in the scripture reading. He lays out the whole story. Jesus was a, a prophet a great prophet. He had done amazing things. And before God and the people, our, our chief priest delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. So women of our company have amazed us. They're at the tomb early in the morning and they couldn't find his body. And we know that the tomb is empty, but him they have not seen. Here's the thing. These two disciples who are walking on this road with Jesus, they knew the story. They knew the story. They had all the facts they needed to have. They had heard Jesus teach. They had heard him say, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. They had a testimony that on the third day, now the tomb is empty, but they still don't get it. See, they got the story right. They only got it mostly right. Jesus said that you are slow to believe. They were slow of heart to believe the biggest part, you see. The the part they missed is right at the beginning of what they they described to Jesus. They said, said, you see, Jesus was a mighty prophet. And that's where they messed up. Jesus was not just a prophet. He was the son of God, and that's what they had missed, and that makes all the difference in the world. That's what we miss that makes all the difference in the world. Because Jesus, if Jesus is not just a prophet, but if he is the son of God, then we're dealing with a different kind of person. 
If Jesus is not just a prophet, if he's the son of God, then he demands our full submission rightfully. If Jesus is not just a prophet, if he's the son of God, then he requires our full and complete trust in him and all that he says and all that he does. He requires our submission and our trust. If he's not just a prophet, if he's the son of God, then we're dealing with a different kind of power, you see. We should expect that he will do what he said he would do. And we should know that he has the ability to make anything happen that he wants to happen. You see, it's important. You can get the story right. You can be able to tell me about Jesus and died on the cross for sins and he rose again on the third day and I know that's what we're celebrating today. You can know the story and you can get it all right. But if you miss that one key part, that he's the son of God that requires full submission and trust from you and he has the ability and the power to do everything he said that he would do and he will do all of it. See, until you see Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, as the Son of God, you'll miss him. He can be right by your very side. You can be singing the, the words to your mouth, with your mouth to these songs that we are singing. You can recount the, the creeds and the confessions with us. You can show up and check all the boxes. But until you confess him as your Savior and Lord, the Son of God, you'll miss him. And that's why Jesus scolded them. You see that? It's, it's, really, it's really both bold and sweet the way he scolds them. He scolded him. He called him. He said, oh, you are so foolish and slow of heart to believe. He said, you're foolish. Why, would, why were they foolish? Does it seem like, let's just stop for a minute. Is it foolish to think that somebody didn't rise again from the dead? That's not generally foolish. When somebody dies, they die, right? If you were to say, hey, my friend Bob, he, he died last Sunday and he rose again on Wednesday, I'd be like, uh, I'm not believing you. And I think that wisdom is on my side on that. Why would he call them foolish for not believing because he was the son of God. And he has all power and authority and he's going to do what he said he was going to do and he has all the power and the ability to make it happen. He called them foolish because they were looking for additional proof. Like Thomas who said, unless I put my, my finger into the holes in his hand and my hand into the scar on his side, I won't believe. But here they were walking with him, and they missed it. You know what? That means the scars were there. That means there were holes in his hand. It means that they looked down at his, his feet in those sandals, there was a hole there. They missed it. They were foolish for thinking that the real Savior would deliver them in the way they thought that he should deliver them. That's why they missed it. Jesus, we wanted a Savior who would come with a horse and an army and lightning and dispel the Roman army. They are foolish like we are.
They were slow of heart. Why did he say they were slow of heart to believe? Because he had shown in his life who he was. He had shown that he was the Son of God. He had predicted his death and rising, and they had the testimony of the empty tomb on the third, third day, and yet they still didn't believe that he was who he said he was. You see, there comes a time when being careful is actually being foolish. There comes a time when weighing the facts is simply unbelief. You, you know what I'm talking about. You hold back a part of yourself. You hold back a part of your heart, a part of your mind. And in your heart and mind, you might be in the group, but you're really just an observer. You're a follower, not a worshiper. You see, Jesus won't allow that. You can't be his follower without worshiping him as the Son of God. And that's where it's so beautiful that not only did Jesus scold them for being foolish and slow of heart to believe, but then it says he opened the Scriptures to them. And he showed, what did he show from the Scriptures? What we talk, we'll be talking about the Old Testament at this point. What did, what did he show for them from the Old Testament that, that it says that he, he showed them all the things about himself in the Old Testament? What would he be showing them? Well, he would have shown them, he showed them how the Scripture had promised the Messiah or the Savior. That's what Messiah means. How the Savior, the Messiah, would come. It happened all the way, it began all the way in the beginning. Back in the Garden of Eden, right after the sin had occurred, right in the middle when God comes and and, and confronts Adam and Eve, here's what he says in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity, enmity he's talking to the, the snake at this point, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, or your seed, that, that word should be capitalized in your Bible, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's already in the very beginning, right after sin had entered the world, and it's going to mar the world, just like we, as we've seen throughout the generations since then. He puts a promise in that garden. He says, I'm going to send a Savior who's going to conquer your enemy. Moses shows up, and he's the greatest prophet, the greatest leader that the nation of Israel had ever known. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 18:15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Like John the Baptist showing up and saying, hey, I'm a prophet, but I'm, there's someone coming after me whose shoe, shoelaces I'm not even worthy to tie. He is the Son of God. Listen to him. I must decrease and he must increase. There was a promise from the very beginning that God, God said, I'm going to send a Savior, a Messiah, to deliver you. He showed them probably how in the Scriptures they had predicted his, his birth and his life, his death, his burial and his resurrection. It's all kind, of all kind of passages. I would have loved to have been on that road to hear him open them. Imagine what it's like to hear Jesus preach from the Old Testament. It's got to be amazing. Like, he's like, I wrote it. I'm very familiar with it. But it would be a passage kind of like this. You might be familiar with it. But, but listen to it with your eyes, with your, the eyes of your ears. This morning. Listen to the eyes of your mind and hear the pictures that is pictured. This is 700 years before Christ will be born, by the way. Isaiah 53, 2 through 10. 
for he, he's talking, he's prophesying about Jesus, the Messiah, for he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of, dry out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Picture him on the cross. Surely. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But hear this. If you're like, okay, that's kind of general, Randy. Well, here verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the... Or the uh, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He was oppressed, and if he was afflicted, yet hear, hear him before the, his trials, before the cross. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the, my people. Hear this in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Come on, guys. No one disputes this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And his disciples couldn't have manufactured this because they didn't, it, it, we're told, they didn't even realize what was going on and didn't believe. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. You know what Jesus showed them out of the scriptures? He showed them that the greatest problem isn't, our greatest problems aren't outside of us. They're within us. See, these disciples, kind of like us, they thought that they needed deliverance from their exterior troubles. And we tend to think, think the same thing. If I just had that husband, if I had that wife, if I had that kid, if I had that money, if I had that job, if I had that education, if I had that house, if I had that background, if I had that family, if I had that parent, if I had that mom, if I had that dad, if I had this, then, God, if you would give me those things, then I would know you're real because you would deliver me out of what I think my troubles are. We think our trouble are, is exterior to us, outside of us, but our troubles, our deepest troubles are really within us. How many of you have worked hard to make it to the easy life? And whenever you get to whatever the goal that you think on the Monopoly board, the whatever space that you think is the good life, the easy life, whenever you make it there, you look around only to find out that you're still restless. Only to find out that relationships still break. Only to find out that there's still a gnawing hunger inside you. That's because of your sin and your rebellion against God, your maker. And that's what Jesus came to save you from. It's what was predicted hundreds and even thousands of years before his birth. He came to unite you to God. 
Do you feel your heart burning within you when I say that? That's what they would have felt. That's what happened to them as they, as Jesus opened the scriptures to them, as Jesus was walking with them, they didn't yet recognize him, and yet their heart was burning within them. Each of their, their hearts were burning within, within them. What does that mean? It means that it was their deep longing, the deep longing of their soul that caused their hearts to burn. As Jesus opened the scriptures, as he showed how the, the message of the whole Bible was about him, as they heard their true need of a savior, as they heard about what kind of God, what kind of savior God had actually promised them, it erupted within them the deepest longings of their soul saying, oh yes, that's what I need. Didn't our hearts burn within us whenever he opened the scriptures? Do you remember how we talked about the Savior and how our need for cleansing of our sin, our, our need of a cleansing of our record before God, our need to be reunited back to God the Father? Do you remember him opening that and how our hearts burn within us? Oh, I wish that was true. Where is that Savior? Their heart burned within them because it was the presence of Jesus that caused their heart to burn. He was their creator, and he was walking with them. It was like the garden again, going back to the garden, where mankind, when we were first made, Adam and Eve walked, it says, in the garden in the coolness of the day with God himself. They walked down that road in the garden with God. And our hearts are longing for that ever again. And when they were walking with him down that road, it may not have looked like a garden. It may have looked like a, a dumpy place. I don't know where they were, but as they're walking, it was like the garden was recreated about, around them. Didn't our hearts burn within us because the maker, the creator, our God was walking with us. The dead yet risen Lord of heaven and earth had, was you bringing them back to the Father. Our hearts are burning within us because it's like a dove trying to fly back home or a, a magnet trying to, trying to find true north. And do you feel that in yourself now? Pushing, pulling within your heart, pulling yourself, pulling some exterior force, pulling you back to the creator. That's the resurrected power of the risen Christ who is in our midst at this very moment now, calling you back home, saying, I've made a way. Do you see how their eyes were open to see Jesus? The risen Christ spoke with them. He added no new facts, by the way, to the story. He had opened the Old Testament to them before. He, opened, he added no new facts. He didn't teach them anything new about his death, burial, and resurrection. They had all the facts already. What was it that, that caused their hearts to burn within us? He showed them their need for a Savior in the Scriptures. And then it says that he broke the bread. And he showed them that he was the Savior. In the scriptures, he showed them their need for a savior, and in their presence, as he broke the bread, he showed them he was the savior. It's a picture of two things. One is the wording is almost the same as when it says Jesus broke the bread in order to turn a couple of loaves into enough food to feed 5,000 people. And it's the picture of Jesus at the table at his last supper with the disciples. Their eyes were opened. He spoke faith into their heart, but yet they still had to respond, and that's what he's calling you to do today. You see, believing, not seeing, because they saw Jesus. 
They still do not believe. They saw the risen Jesus. They still do not believe. Believing, not seeing, but believing in Jesus as the Son of God is what changes us. It's what changed them. It's what changed how they saw their life and the world around them. It turned their despair into rejoicing, and it can do the same for you. Trust in him. Believe in him. Because if Jesus is risen, if he is the Son of God, if he is the Lord of creation, if he died for your sin and my sin and is risen again, then he is remaking the whole world and all of a sudden out of despair comes joy. And it means that he is remaking those of us who believe in him. His resurrection power is now at work within us as believers. He is with us, and his resurrection power is working within us. Oh, believe in him today. Believe in him today, for he has risen indeed. I don't know why you're quiet. I think I would be jumping up and down and running around this room. I don't, I don't know. I'd, it's a sobering truth. It's a joyous truth. I'm about to open the front for communion. And we're going to celebrate the supper that Jesus had with his disciples before his death. The same supper that is pictured in this time where he sits down with these two disciples and breaks bread in their midst and they see him. And if you're a believer in Christ, no matter where you call church home, is open for you to come and feast upon Christ. He offers himself freely and without reserve to you. But if this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about what label that you've carried up to this point. I'm saying if that new life has not occurred within you, if you have not placed you bowed your knee before him and called him Son of God, Savior, and Lord, and fully submitted to him and given all your life without holding anything back, without any reserve. If that is you this morning, don't come forward for communion, but today can be an even more holy moment for you. Today can be the day and should be the day. In fact, today must be the day that you call out to God to save you. God, speak to my heart as you did to these two disciples. I've no, maybe I've known the facts before, but speak to my heart, the prayer, the faith, uh, the, your faith into my soul. But don't wait for a feeling. Don't wait for an emotion. Don't wait for a sign from heaven. He has given you all the signs that he's needed. Drop down now on your knees and cry out for mercy to him. I promise you this that the risen Son of God who bled and died for you, who took holes in his hands and his feet, whose side was pierced for you, who went to the grave for you, who descended to the dead for you and has risen again for you, he will in no way cast you out, but in every way will bring you in. Not holding anything over your head, not asking any for you to do anything more except to believe and to trust. Today is your day. There's a little bench up forward. You can come up here and you can cry out to him here. You can grab someone beside you. You can come up and grab me. Today is the day. Don't leave. I'm not trying to emotionally manipulate anyone. The Holy Spirit can do his work. But man, for the rest of the service, let's celebrate that risen king. 
for he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and power. And all dominion belongs to him. He has risen indeed. Father, we thank you for the truth, for the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is, not only was he risen, but he is risen now. Not only was he killed, but he is dead now for us, and he is risen now for us as believers. Show us the truth. Reveal to us him this morning, we pray, as we partake of the broken body and the shed blood for us. Mm -hmm.